everyone, my name is Ari and welcome to Made of Metal, a motivational podcast where we tell stories about regular people overcoming insurmountable odds. So welcome back everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. You guys make this all so much fun for me. Like I'm recording this early in the morning. Granted, I am a morning person, but I'm so pumped. (laughs) So this is your weekly reminder about my AirPods gratitude giveaway. I'm actually thinking of doing this every other month, giving something back on a regular basis. It's a practice that I'd love to incorporate more regularly. So you can enter the gratitude giveaway on my website or click the link in my bio on my Instagram or Facebook. So my website is madeofmetalpodcast.com all together. So you spell metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, madeofmetalpodcast.com. So, you know, I'm giving away a free pair of AirPods for the holiday to anyone who signs up. They don't necessarily have to listen to the podcast. So please do share this with anyone who you know that would be interested, you know, in checking off an item early of the Christmas list, you know, be a little proactive, be better than me. (laughs) And speaking of Christmas... While hanging out on the holiday, I went to REI for the first time in forever. It was just such a great experience. It was a perfect reminder as to why I love exploring and being outdoors. I personally consider myself a modern day hippie, a huge tree hugger. I'm so proud of it. I absolutely adore hiking or just being outside doing anything grounding with nature If you're really into nature spots and mindfulness and wellness, you can follow me on my personal Instagram, which is Ari the Hippie. So nature is my sacred space. It's where I go to get away from it all and recharge. And often when I'm out on a hike, I always wonder like, darn, who had the foresight to preserve such a beautiful place? Or who had the privilege to kind of stumble upon this first? So this line of thinking is what led me to the person I researched for this week's episode. This person was an advocate that had a vision for the future where nature was appreciated and respected, virtually untouched by people. While navigating a brand new homeland, this individual petitioned for setting a universal standard for protecting our natural resources across the country, while helping other people see the true value of conservation. This individual also had to overcome a huge lack of familiar support and dogma in order to pursue their true vocation of being a champion for Mother Nature. Surprisingly, although I spend a lot of time hiking, I mean like at least once a week, if not more, I didn't know a lot about this person. So, you know, this was a joy for me to research just because I was learning something completely new but especially because I'm experiencing the benefits of this person's actions in my daily life. When I hang out outside, when I go to the park, when I hike, when I feel like I'm super lost on a hike. (laughs) So this week, we'll be discussing the caretaker, the countryman, the conservator, John Muir. John Muir was born in Dunbar, Scotland on April 21st, 1838. John was one of eight children born to his parents, Daniel and Anne. Living in Scotland, John said his memories were filled with time spent in nature on walks with his grandfather. 
as he grew up, John and his friends lived most of their childhood outside, on the runaround, roughhousing, and bird spotting for fun. Unfortunately, John had to deal with a stifling and religious father at home who believed in following the Bible word for word. John's time spent outside was considered sinful as it distracted him from his Bible studies. In 1849, when John was just 11 years old, the family would move from Scotland to a farm in America. So the family moved all the way from Scotland to Wisconsin, as John's father wanted to join an Orthodox religious sect that was based in Wisconsin. John also became interested in engineering and created several inventions in his youth, including a wooden thermometer that he displayed at the Wisconsin State Fair. So I've always said that people who are drawn to nature seem to be more naturally creative and expressive, which we'll see more of as John's story continues. Around 1860, John traveled to the nearby town of Madison in order to attend the University of Wisconsin. John was always regarded as bright and intelligent, although he wasn't allowed to express it outside of his Bible studies. It was at university that John's passion and interest in environmentalism began to really take hold. John described his first botany lesson as a life-changing experience that altered the landscape of nature for him for the rest of his days. Although John was an engaged student who enjoyed learning, his approach to schooling was that he'd only take the classes he was interested in, which was a bit unconventional. As such, his official records indicate he never progressed past a first-year student. And I had to mention this tidbit because I thought it was hilarious. But the official records showed his status as irregular gents. <laughs> what? Like, wow, what an impression you must have made in order to be classed as an irregular gent in your record. I mean, not really a bad thing in my opinion. In fact, I would consider myself an irregular gent in my last two years of school. <laughs> so I can definitely relate. After just a couple years, John would leave the University of Wisconsin to take up rigorous self-study, delving into the study of plants and the natural world at his own pace, hiking and backpacking until his money ran out. Around 1864, after connecting with one of his brothers in Ontario, John was persuaded to take up a job working with him at a local factory. John continued hiking and learning about the natural world on his own terms, an education that he would have never received in a formal school setting. During this time period, the majority of John's income was from odd jobs he'd stumble upon, which had served him well so far. In 1867, John was working at a factory job when he was almost blinded during an industrial accident. For quite some time, John wasn't able to see and was quarantined to a dark room as he was partially completely blind. But this time afforded him a lot of reflection. When John had recovered and regained his ability to see, something within him changed. John had been making an attempt to work at normal jobs in order to sustain himself. But once he'd regained his sight, 
he fully committed to his desire to become a full-time naturalist. His first big hike was a walk from the Midwest to Florida, in which he documented and drawn the topography he was witnessing along the way. Yes, you heard that right. A walk from the Midwest to Florida. Can you imagine the conditions he had to survive in order to make that hike? And if you're really, truly interested in hearing about those specific conditions, his hike was detailed in his book titled A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf, aptly named if I do say so myself. By his own words, John described choosing his path by deciding to go to the wildest, leafiest, and least trodden way he could find. After arriving in Florida, John began working for a sawmill and unfortunately became very ill with a malarial fever, which is to be expected after a hike of that length of time being exposed to the elements and more specifically, mosquitoes. John's employer took care of him during his sickness, in which he pays homage to him in his writings. After regaining his health, John would sail to Cuba and spend time over there studying the local plant and wildlife. After about a year, John returned to the U.S. via New York City, eventually ending up in California. During this time period, John also served as a guide, working for the United States Coast and Geodetic Survey. John arrived in California around 1868 and traveled directly to Yosemite. It was his experience in Yosemite that would be the hallmark of John's legacy. Plus, it led to one of his largest conservation projects. John immediately fell in love with Yosemite, eventually working in the area as a shepherd. John lived in Yosemite in a tiny cabin he'd built for a few years, describing the experience as spiritual. I thought this was incredible too. I had to mention this. When he constructed his cabin, he made it so a portion of the river flowed directly into it because he liked the sound of running water. Baller, like what? That is something I'm 100% going to do now, by the way, (laughs) in my own home. But John had also documented his time in Yosemite extensively in his book titled First Summer in the Sierra. John became something of a legend in the area, and visitors would seek him out when they arrived in Yosemite to connect with him. And now, you guys know I love timeline crossovers. This is crazy. This made my jaw drop. I'm a huge literature, English nerd, all the way, huge bookworm. One of John's favorite authors was Ralph Waldo Emerson. John was also described as having his pack in an Emerson novel in his hand when on his hikes. He called Emerson one of his greatest influences. So Ralph Waldo Emerson (laughs) made a point to travel out to visit John in Yosemite. They met up and chatted, and Ralph offered John a job, in which he promptly declined. But John described it as meeting his idol, an experience akin to meeting a historical icon. The thing about John, he wasn't just observing the beauty of nature. He wanted to contribute to the understanding of it. He wanted to contribute to the betterment of it. He wrote about everything he'd witnessed and learned on his treks. From his travels, John was the first to introduce the theory 
that the Yosemite Valley was formed by glacial movements, while the previously and more widely accepted assumption was that it was formed by an earthquake. John first introduced this theory around 1874. And John didn't just limit his travels to the West Coast. He'd also made his way to Alaska on four separate occasions. Alaska, the last frontier. As always, John would document all of his Alaskan experiences in his journal, and it would eventually be published in his book, The Cruise of the Corwin. I'm loving how he's not just experiencing these incredible places, but he's making a point to write about everything so that other people can appreciate and learn. Other people who may not have the means or the time to actually travel. He's at least giving them the perspectives so that they can experience a portion of it. I think that's so amazing. In 1876, one of John's papers on plant life in the Yosemite Valley was published by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So that just shows how much validity and how highly regarded John's opinions were. They're getting published by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It was around this time that John would fully step into his role as a preservationist and advocate for the National Forest. Using his writings and experience, John published several articles in support of land conservations in magazines such as The Atlantic Monthly and Harper's New Monthly Magazine. These were highly popular periodicals that put John's words in front of the eyes of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans. The way John wrote about the environment and the natural world changed the perspectives of many people. His descriptions of his travels moved his readers in a way they didn't anticipate. John had a way with words that described the landscapes in a way no one else could. Poetic was one word used to describe John's writing on the natural world that left an emotional impact on the reader. It should also be noted that John's opinions were in direct opposition of the popular opinion at the time in supporting the conservation of some of the resources in the national forests while allowing a portion to be used for industrial purposes. John believed in preserving all of the land without tapping into any of its resources, allowing the natural world to flourish undisturbed. Because of John's advocacy, the Sequoia, Grand Canyon, and Yosemite National Parks were created in 1890. A couple years later, in 1892, John would co-found the Sierra Club. The Sierra Club was the first of its kind as an environmental protection organization outside of government influence. John would serve as the president of the Sierra Club until his death. Around 1897, President Grover Cleveland would name 13 national forests, a decision that was influenced by John's writings and public support. Although John did live alone in Yosemite for some time, he would eventually meet a woman and marry around 1880. They had two children, both girls, and John lived with his new family in California. Even during fatherhood, it's documented that John was more often than not out exploring the backcountry where they lived. Another groundbreaking contribution to the conservation of our parks and creation of our national park system can be attributed to John directly, as he was the guide responsible for taking President Roosevelt 
out on a camping trip to the Yosemite in 1903. It was on this camping trip that the president himself said directly influenced his policies on environmental conservation. John didn't just stop hiking and exploring as he aged. John would make a historic trip to the Amazon, where he studied the plant life and the environment to his heart's content. As he left the Amazon, John described it as another incredible frontier. Old age didn't seem to slow John down one bit, but sadly, illness would follow him. John Muir would pass away in Los Angeles, California on December 24th, 1914 from a case of pneumonia. Now, this story makes my heart swell for several reasons. I mean, this guy sounds like a complete hero to me, not just for following his heart and pursuing his love for nature, but for taking the time to write down his experiences, to have the vision, to document it all to be shared for generations to come. And to write in such a beautiful way, you guys, to inspire an entire environmental movement. So beautiful, you need to read his writings. And what luck that he would share his writing with the public. He wrote journal entries, articles, books, all of which were aimed at helping the public understand the importance of appreciating and respecting the natural world around you. You can apply the blueprint of John's life to any vocation, to be honest. Number one, pursue what you love. Number two, let your passion lead the way. And number three, move forward without fear for the future. Because of John's advocacy, we are able to enjoy the benefit of national forests, state parks, and federally managed conservation efforts. I truly shudder to think of the world, what it would be like if John hadn't been around to change the course of history. And I love to run into the forest because it always feels like home. So I chose this quote from John because it just resonates with me so much and it's just so indicative of how one feels in nature. I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown. For going out, I found, was really going in. So you can check us out at madeofmetalpodcast.com. You can follow Made of Metal Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And if you love the show, please review and rate wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget about that AirPods giveaway. And as always, my loves, bloom where you are planted.